This episode of Recommended is sponsored by the novel and internment by Samira Ahmed. Set in a horrifying near-future United States, 17-year-old Leila Amin and her parents are forced into an internment camp for Muslim American citizens. With the help of newly made friends also trapped within the internment camp, her boyfriend on the outside, and an unexpected alliance, Layla begins a journey to fight for freedom, leading a revolution against the internment camp's director and his guards. Heart racing and emotional, internment challenges readers to fight complicit silence that exists in our society today. Samira Ahmed is the New York Times best-selling author of Love, Hate, and Other Filters, which was also an ABA Indies Introduced pick. She is a vocal proponent for changes that need to be made in our society to fight against bigotry. With recent marches and protests led by teen activists, internment has the potential to resonate strongly with teen leaders who fight to make the change they want to see in their own communities. Thanks again to The Novel for sponsoring today's show. This is Recommended, where we talk to interesting people about their favorite books. Today, Lori Hall Sanderson and Mickey Kendall talk about books that have shaped how they write. Lori Hall Sanderson is a New York Times best-selling author whose writing spans young readers, teens, and new adults. She has been nominated three times for the Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award, is a National Book Award finalist, and has been shortlisted for the prestigious Carnegie Medal. Lori was selected by the American Library Association for the 2009 Margaret A. Edwards Award and has been honored for her battles for intellectual freedom by the National Coalition Against Censorship and the National Council of Teachers of English. In addition to combating censorship, Lori regularly speaks about the need for diversity in publishing. Her latest book, Shout, is a searing poetic memoir and a call to action. Hey, my name is Lori Haltz Anderson, and the book that I'm recommending is The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. It's one of my favorite books, and I think it has a lot to do with why I, I became a writer. And I hate to use the word self-help because uh, for a lot of people that, that conjures up not helpful things, but it's a, it's a workbook. Uh, I think Julia Cameron likes to say that it's for blocked creatives, whether that creativity wants to come out in words or music or dance, all kinds of different creatives. And it's a little bit modeled on the 12-step program that I know she's fond of in terms of people who have um, some substance abuse issues or other addictions in terms of helping you explore yourself, but it's like removed from that. When I'm talking to writers groups, I say there's a little bit of woo-woo in this. And if you dig the woo-woo, it's going to be awesome. If you don't dig the woo-woo, you don't have to pay attention to it. But she's got a couple of different techniques that really, really helped me transform myself from somebody who wanted to write into somebody who was actually writing. In the mid-1990s, which was 100 million years ago, I was working at a Walden Books bookstore in a mall outside Philadelphia. I was, uh, you know, I had young kids and I had a bunch of different jobs. I was freelancing for a newspaper, freelancing for trade journals and trying desperately to figure out how to write well and earning lots of um, well-deserved rejections from every single publisher. And I, you know, I, I didn't study writing. I don't have an advanced degree. Um, and it was slowly dawning on me that I had no clue what I was doing. And I was, I was really beginning to wrestle with a lot of the emotional stuff that can get in the way of writing, you know, like, like, Oh, you're a fraud. Oh, who, who are you? How dare you think you have something to say? All those gremlins that take up residence in your brain. I think her book came out in 92. 
So it wasn't a hardback when I first bought it, thank goodness, because I couldn't afford hardbacks. And I was had a nice discount at the bookstore. So I bought it and it changed my life. When I started to write, totally fumbling in the darkness, just, you know, having been a kid who loved reading uh, from about fourth grade on and who had been making up stories and writing poetry from about fourth grade on, but had been a little bit scarred by the traditional writing process as it was and sometimes still is taught in schools. You know, I thought I had to understand everything ahead of time. And I had no experience of, since I was a little kid, of just letting it flow. I was like really locked into trying to be an adult and, and operating from my intellect, from my brain. Like, here's a plot and here's a character. And so one of the things that she talks about is writing morning pages. You, you, the first thing you do when you roll out of bed in the morning is you write three pages in your journal. There's no prescription. You're just trying to develop the habit of listening to the still small voice of creativity within you. And those morning entries can often begin with, boy, this lady's got no idea what she's talking about. You know, I have no creativity at all. I'm really tired. And then all of a sudden, if you stick with it, uh, the magic starts to flow out your pen and you're like, what's going on? It was developing that creative habit that gave me the courage and sort of with those morning pages. And she also has recommendations for how to put other kinds of art into your life. Because if you're going to create art, you have to feed yourself art, visual art, um, textiles, music, all kinds of stuff. But that habit of getting my head out of the way and beginning to listen to what was stirring somewhere deeper inside me, that started with this book. Whenever anybody writes a book about writing, I always buy it because I'm always looking for a way to do it better, right? And to do it a little bit. And depending on where you are in your life or your career, sometimes you need all this help. Our culture is so consumer and profit oriented that I think these books are really very nice companions to have focusing on the creative process itself. My career started at a time long before Twitter. You know, we were just beginning to get email in the mid-90s. Nobody had websites. There was no forum for communications before even MySpace. And I think sometimes you can, new writers put the, the publication ahead of the creation of the work. Because there's so much, there are so many avenues, right, to publish. And you've got, um, you know, pitch, pitch wars for agents. And there's a lot of great tools out there. But they, they're not terribly helpful if you haven't been able to kind of find your rhythm in your writing. For me, at least, these kinds of books that really double down on, let's look at the creativity. Let's find that, you know, what are you feeling? Where, you know, how does, what, does this tie to my life? Does this tie to something else I've seen or experienced or gotten angry about? And then just follow these threads that for me, I, this is why the morning journal is very helpful. When, you, we, when I'm just coming out of sleep in the morning, provided I don't have to go take care of somebody or jump on an airplane, that's a very fertile time because I, in that in-between time between dream state and checking your email, <laughs> that's when all the creativity stops. That's when I found um, that my, my magic self, my muse self is ready to play. And I had a really busy writing year in 2018 and I'll be on the road a lot in 2019. But um, by the time we get to summer, hopefully things are going to quiet down enough that I can unplug from the world. And I have no idea what I'm going to write next. 
this book, um, Artist Way, is really great when you're like, I got nothing, but I want to create something. Imagine if you were with somebody who you knew was really looking out for your best interest, right? And they weren't going to let, they were going to like help you be your best self and support you and make you feel so safe that you would take risks in your art and you would try something new and be willing to experiment. That's what this book does for me. So this culture we, we live in, it likes to make rock stars out of people. We lift up people, but we lift them up, not necessarily, we don't lift up the creativity sometimes. And there's a lot of performative stuff that um, can get in the way. One of the things that I've really enjoyed in the kidlit community in YA lit in the last 20 years is we now have more opportunities to gather together in retreats. A lot of body body author groups will get together um, and do small unconferences or retreats together. And that's a really, really healthy space. And really, you know, that's when you can focus on, you know, again, feeling safe and exploring places that you haven't dared go yet. Uh, so for me, there's like the books is, these books are the closest I can come to that in my own home without anybody else around. I go, go to a lot of teacher conferences and librarian conferences and writer conferences over the course of every year. And it's really fun because it's like visiting your extended family. Um, and we all care so much about, you know, the children of America, all of them and trying to create great works of art for them, but also for the child and the teen and all of us, right? Because we're all, I mean, no matter how old you get, most people have a, a couple of rough patches uh, in their memory and reading sometimes about other kids or other teens can help with that. But what I would love to see would be to make more space in these kinds of gatherings, librarian, educator conferences, writers conferences, for actually sitting down and writing <laughs> and not just talking about books all the time. But there, there is something like, like the way that, you know, when you get a lot of great voices in a room, um, they, and they hit that right chord, right? And the harmony's good. And the sound of the singers together is much more than the sum of the bodies in the room. I believe, and I've had this experience, that when people write within the space together, and not talking, but just like the energy is there. And it's, um, it's really energizing, and it's healthy, and it's good. When I was preparing for this interview, I went for my copy and I have given it away again. I, I have given away dozens of copies of this book. I'm still always recommending, it's been out for a long time now, but I continue to recommend it because the advice um, at least works with me. Um, and so I have to go buy a new copy now that I realize that I'm, I'm out of it. So thanks for, the, for, for having me do that. Thanks again to Lori Hall Sanderson for joining us and recommending The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Her memoir, Shout, published by Viking Books for Young Readers, is now available wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Twitter at Hall Sanderson. This episode of Recommended is also sponsored by The Fifth Doctrine, the third book in New York Times best-selling author Karen Robard's The Guardian series. It took one hell of an effort for the authorities to finally get the jump on master manipulator Bianca St. Ives. But now that they have, it's far from the capture she expected. Instead of taking her in, there's an offer on the table. A one-shot deal that would allow Bianca to walk away scot-free as if they'd never found her. 
and all she has to do is run one last mission, the kind she might never return from. But if Bianca wants to go back to her normal life in Savannah, it's not like she has a choice. The Guardian series is a best-selling, critically acclaimed series for fans of James Bond and Jason Bourne who are looking for a strong female lead. Publishers Weekly says the delightful, capable, and frequently funny Bianca is an intoxicating combo of Stephanie Plum and James Bond. Thanks to The Fifth Doctrine by Karen Robards for sponsoring the show. Mickey Kendall is a writer, diversity consultant, and occasional feminist who talks a lot about intersectionality, policing, gender, sexual assault, and other current events. Her nonfiction can be found at Time.com, The Guardian, Washington Post, Ebony, Essence, Salon, ExoJane, Bustle, Islamic Monthly, and a host of other sites. Her media appearances include BBC, NPR, Al Jazeera, WVON, WBEZ, TWIB, and Showtime. And her fiction has been published through Revelator Magazine and Torqueware Press. Her comics work can be found in the Swords of Sorrow Anthology, the Princeless Charity Anthology, and in Spitball, the CCAD Anthology of 2016. My name is Nikki Kendall, and the book I'm recommending is Sybil by Flora Rada Schreiber. Sybil is a book about a woman who is ostensibly suffering from disassociative identity disorder and is a very deep dive into the different personalities, the way that this has supposedly been created by the abuse from her mother and her eventually developing a single identity as opposed to, I think it was 12 disparate identities at one point she had. I first read this book when I was eight. I had a cold, I want to say, or maybe the flu, and I was homesick. My aunt was in school at the time, in graduate school at the time, and I was rummaging through her bookshelf for stuff to read. I read a lot of inappropriate books that, that, that two-week period. I started reading Sybil and was about halfway through it before anyone realized I probably shouldn't be reading it. There was a brief attempt to, to take it from me. It turns out that sometimes it's not very effective trying to take a book from a sick kid. Puppy eyes work so good when you're hacking up a lung. So good. For me, the book was fascinating for a host of reasons. In my eight-year-old head, this was not a true story. Um, and since and since apparently in 2011, the real Sybil, the woman um, the book is supposed to be about, has said that she faked it. But it was the most fascinating thing because she could be so many people. And for some eight-year-old logic reason, I was completely enamored with the idea of being able to change completely who you were based seemingly on your mood, to change your voice, your clothes, everything, and then you're a different person. Okay, this is also going to make people judge me. Some of my favorite scenes are actually when she decides, basically, there's a, there's a scene where she basically decides that she doesn't like one of the altars decides they don't like where she where she lives or where she works and they sort of relatively dramatically completely overhaul her her living situation just by making the decision that hmm you're going to apply for a new job you're going to move into a new better place you're going to get away from this person who wasn't very nice there's a guy that likes her one of the altars you know starts to flirt with this guy because he's nice. The other one really goes hard in checking him out. And so some of my favorite scenes are really just her kind of waking up and realizing my life sucks today. 
oh, but now my life is much better today and figure and having to navigate the different worlds that the altars are taking her to. I did not have the happiest of childhoods. And I, at the time, sort of thought I was stuck, right? That nothing else was going to be possible. No, there was no way out kind of a thing. For me, realizing that someone as an adult could just make a decision and change things. I know this is going to sound really strange because of the content of the book. But for me, Sybil was one of the first things I read that because it was not about little kids and sort of being directed by adults and what they did, that really said to me, even if you don't like how things are, you get to change it. Maybe you can't change it right now, but when you're, when you're an adult, you get to do what you want. And other people don't have to understand it. You can just do it. Around the same time, I read Alice in Wonderland and Rolling Thunder, Hear My Cry. There's a scene in Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry where she gets her revenge on the white girl that's been bullying her. And there's also a scene in Alice where Alice basically ignores what everyone is saying to do what she wants and she gets to be victorious. And somehow in my eight-year-old brain, these books all scratch that saying, you are capable of taking control of your future itch. I reread it after the announcement came out, I want to say in 2010, 2011, that she had made it up. And uh, somebody saw me actually on the train reading it and wanted to know, you know, what it was about. And I was explaining it. And I'm not sure I explained well why it was still so worth it to read it, because it was definitely one of those where, you know, that woman said it was fake. And I'm like, I know. But then she becomes the greatest storyteller of all time. Right. Like she's managed to virtually create all of these characters and convince multiple people that these characters are real. They are absolutely 100% real and must be addressed. I thought that that was fascinating because if she was able to convince a trained therapist and all of these people around her, then either this is the greatest con ever run or it is the most elaborate fantasy life possible. The person said, I never thought about it that way. I never read the book. Is it a good book? And it's actually a really well-written book, aside from anything else. I think Sybil is a really well-written book. I think the book is part of why I, even now, am probably more interested in writing the character than I am in writing the setting. I will describe the setting, but you know how people get into very elaborate descriptions of wallpaper and flooring and that kind of thing? That really doesn't interest me in my own writing. I really almost, I've learned not to have my, my characters be in a white space, but I really almost am less interested in what is happening around them and more interested in what is happening inside their heads. I am as they used to politely say, a voracious reader. I have read probably tens of thousands of books at this point because I am one of those people that reads like in the bathroom and while I'm eating breakfast and on the bus and while I'm walking down the street sometimes, you know. And I would say that the books I like most tend, much like this, to be very character focused. And my reading life tends to be one where I am most interested in the people in the book and what is motivating them and what is making them make their choices and less so in, you know, sort of those elaborate, very pretty, I'm not knocking these books, but these elaborate things where the setting is a character, but the setting is necessarily thinking or emotion or anything, like it's not a lie. They just have made it all about the, the, the city in a way that sort of makes the people props in the giant dollhouse of the city kind of a thing. I don't necessarily care for those books.
I think everyone should probably at least read Sybil and, and kind of look at the, the, the actual structure and how she made this work. Not necessarily that you have to imitate it, but I think in terms of character work and a lot of introspection into what people were thinking, it was really well done. Thanks again to Mickey Kendall for joining us and recommending Sybil by Flora Retta Schreiber. You can follow Kendall on Twitter at Carnithia. That's K-A-R-N-Y-T-H-I-A. Thanks again to our sponsors for making today's episode possible. If you like what you heard, please do take a moment to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We love to hear your feedback and it helps other folks to find the show. You can find show notes at bookriot.com slash recommended, and you can email us at recommended at bookriot.com. 